Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. It's good to be together. We will pause for a brief moment from our uh, study of Romans, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians today. It is the Lord's Supper. Normally, under normal circumstances, you would be able to tell that because we would have the tables out here. We would have the elements visible, and you would see more people than me wearing ties uh, to serve it when the time comes. But uh, things being what they are now, instead, you see these little purple packets and uh, maybe some people with Ziploc baggies, and that indicates to you that it is uh, uh, Communion Sunday. So what we're going to do is uh, study this passage. We're going to work through it kind of briefly in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And to begin that, I want to read it for us today, starting in verse 20. And then uh, we will go through the end of the chapter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray together. Father, we worship you this morning. We have worshiped you in song. We have worshiped you in our fellowship with one another, in prayer together, and in giving, in service. But in this time, we come together and we worship you with your word open in front of us. 
we're reminded that you alone are God, our creator, our maker, the one who thought us up and then formed us. We worship you and bow down to you and give you honor. We praise you for what you have done for us in Christ, that not only have you created us and then sustained us, but you have redeemed us in Christ. And we get to celebrate that today. We get to celebrate that as we work through this passage of Scripture and look at what Paul has written here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as well as when we celebrate the Lord's Supper later together. So we praise you for what you've done for us in Christ. We want to focus on that this morning. We want to look at what this Lord's Supper means, what it means to us and why we do it and how it's honoring to you. And so we want to look at it today. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts by means of your Spirit, even as we have your Word open, that we would see what you have for us, that you would drive it deep into our hearts, that we would give you glory for what we learned today. We commit our time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the... Uh, conundrums that churches have had to deal with in the past 12 months or so is uh, is connected with this little thing right here, that uh, because of COVID-19, because of government restrictions and fears over health and desire to care for one another and love one another, the churches have had to assess how they're going to um, continue meeting and how they're going to continue their regular services, and that includes how they're going to continue uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper together how they're going to take communion. And so different churches have assessed that in different ways, and they've come to different conclusions where you have some that uh, that actually haven't met for uh, maybe this whole period of time or or maybe for an extended period of time they didn't meet. And they would still try and, uh, you know, celebrate the Lord's table together, and they would have everyone have elements at home, and they would celebrate uh, via live stream. And and um, and we, we uh, did that for a while, and we even provided... Uh, I think uh, elements for people to be able to pick up if they needed to from the church and celebrate that at home. It's a weird time, but uh, going through this weirdness and looking at the different uh, struggles and different threats that the health concerns have been and, and all of that kind of stuff has caused churches, has caused pastors to work through these kind of issues. What really is important? What's the most important and what's less important? And it's been fascinating for me as a pastor and for us as elders to watch elders wrestle with that in different contexts and see kind of the conclusions that, uh, that they've come to on those sorts of things. And uh, we at Parkside, we've adjusted. We've, you know, you're up to speed on what all we've done because you're here or you're watching via the, the uh, live stream. But you see that we've adjusted. But it's interesting that in all that adjustment, the, the Lord's Supper is pretty much the same. It looks different because it's in this little purple packet, for one thing. Uh, and we don't have men, uh, you know, dressed in, in, uh, um, you know, in front of us and with the elements out here and those sorts of things. We, we don't serve it in the same way than we did uh, before, but we um, still celebrate it. 
It still means the same thing. We still have thought through what all is involved for us in, uh, in, in celebrating this. And that's because, you know, we've only been given two basic ordinances by the Lord that we as a church are to continue to do throughout time as a church. And one of those is celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And the other one is baptism. And these are things that as a church we must continue doing. And so we're talking today about the Lord's Supper, but I wanted to uh, remind you that we indeed will have uh, a baptism service on Resurrection Sunday. And uh, so we're going to baptize uh, several people. And if you want to be uh, on that list, I've, I've heard from a few of you, if you want to be on that list and be baptized, um, please call the office, please see me afterwards, and we'll, we'll talk about it. And we'll talk about the gospel and talk about your own faith and, and uh, see if we can uh, get you on that list to be baptized that same day. Um, but this is important. Baptism is important. And the Lord's Supper is important, and how we uh, how we celebrate that together is a big deal. When we look at the Corinthian church, they celebrated the Lord's Supper. They were supposed to. The whole church has been supposed to, and they celebrated it. But as with everything at Corinth, it was pretty wild. I remember as a, a new Christian, the first time I read through First and Second Corinthians, I was scandalized at these churches. Are you kidding me that they would behave this way, that they would do these things? I was just amazed at, uh, at the Corinthian church. They, they seem to have gone overboard in nearly every area. And uh, this is one of those that they had. Yes, they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. Well, good for them. The way they were celebrating it uh, was, was pretty crazy. And so that was one of the things that Paul was writing to them to correct, was how they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, what they were doing with it. And so it was a little bit wild. And uh, the, the way they celebrated communion actually was what I've called an abuse of the supper. They were abusing the supper. If you look at verses uh, 20 through 22, he says to them, when, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So they were abusing the supper in various ways. And one of those has to do with the question, whose supper is it? Whose supper is it really? He says uh, to them, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. It's not the Lord's Supper. You're, you're coming together, and it ought to be the Lord's Supper, but actually you're treating it as your own supper. I like the way the Net Bible has translated it there. Uh, you are not really eating the Lord's Supper. He makes it very clear in that translation. You're treating this time together like a regular meal. Well, from where we are, that might seem a little bit odd because this bears no resemblance to a regular meal. Okay? This... <laughs> We're not going to confuse it with, uh, with a regular meal. But in, in those days, in the early church, the celebration of the Lord's Supper was a part of their time together, and they would have a meal together. They would break bread together, and that wasn't just celebrating this. This was a meal. It was kind of the idea of a potluck. They would get together as a church, and they would eat together, and they would do so regularly. And when they did so, 
There would be a time in their service where, time in their dinner, when they would stop and they would recognize this element, bread, means something. And Jesus said this. So they would pause in their regular meal and they would talk about that. And then they would pause in their regular meal and they would talk about the cup and what the cup meant. And they would reflect on what Jesus had said and what it meant for them as a church and they would partake of that. It was a part of a regular meal. And so when he says of them that when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. He's he's pointing out to them, he's chastising them for the fact that when they came together, it was for their own meal. It was to serve themselves. It was what they wanted to do. They wanted to get full. They wanted to get drunk, some of them. They wanted to take advantage of this opportunity for a free meal to uh, to fill up. And, you know, I, I've not... I've not um, had I've not eaten with all of you, but I've eaten with enough of you to know that when we have church potlucks, you know, some of you really like to be at the head of the line. And uh, and you really wish we had reinforced plates because, you know, so that you could get more on there. And it's kind of sad to come after you because it's like, oh, well, you already cleaned it out. I was hoping I'd get some, right? We That's human nature. <laughs> it's, it's human nature, but that's kind of what was going on. Like they wanted to fill up. They wanted to get as much as they could. They wanted to benefit themselves from it. They were, they were, they were treating the Lord's Supper like a first-come, first-served potluck where you better show up a little bit early so that you can get enough. And if you're the guy who's late, you know, you missed out. That's kind of how they were treating the Lord's Supper. They would come early, and they would come hungry, and they would fill up. And that was what they were doing with the Lord's Supper, and they were... They were feeding their own appetites. The primary purpose of it wasn't to glorify God, wasn't to remember Jesus and remember what he had done. It was to fill up. And so much so that not only did they, you know, eat a lot and, and uh, kind of sit back with, you know, their, their belly hanging out or whatever, but actually they would, they would drink so much of the communion wine. They would drink so much of, of the wine that they should have been sharing that you'd have some who would get drunk and you'd have others who didn't get any. They were serving their own appetites. They were there for the food. They weren't there for Jesus. And so our context is different, and, and uh, we, we look at this and we think, well, I, I'm not really <laughs> here for the food. There's, you know, there's some food that I will drive out of my way to get, but as far as food, this is probably not it. But in order to understand what was going on in their context, we need to remember the fact that this was a meal that they ate together. They would celebrate with one another. They were, they were abusing the supper and that they were confused about whose supper it really was. It was for them. It was, it was not even for their soul. It was for their belly. It was for their tastes. They were getting out of it what they wanted to get out of it, though it was to be set apart for something different. And since they were taking the opportunity to fill their own bellies, they, they were not really regarding one another. That's your second point in your outline there. They, they were uh, not regarding one another. They were showing up early. You know, potluck starts at, at 9. Well, I'll be there at 8.50, right? So that the food will hopefully have shown up, but the people to eat the food will not have shown up, and I will get all of my portion because I want to feed myself in this process. Well, what about somebody who shows up late? What about someone who comes in at 9.05, right? Which would have been me, typically, because I'm the guy who's three minutes late or five minutes late. What about that guy? Well, he should have been on time, but he should also be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper and not have you 
having eaten it all already. They were disregarding one another. They were taking care of themselves. They would get there early and they would eat all of it without regard to brothers and sisters who were there to celebrate the Lord's Supper with them. And so they were hindering other people from being able to celebrate it. They were not thinking of others. They were only thinking of themselves. They were looking at the supper not as an opportunity for the church to do something together, but as an opportunity for me to get out of it what I want to get out of it. And according to Paul, the truth behind all of this chaos and disorder was that they were not regarding the church. Not only were they not regarding one another, they were not regarding the church One can take the Lord's Supper in a way that dishonors the church, that disregards the church. There's a way to think about it that that can be dishonoring to Jesus and to Jesus' sacrifice, to his death, and, and what it is we celebrate with these elements. There's a way we can take it that actually brings dishonor. And so he gets into some cautions later on, and we're about to get into those, but it's important for us to think about that. That when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's, it's to honor the Lord. It's communion. It's something that we do together, and it's something we do together with the Lord. There is to be communion. And so it's not about me, by myself, alone, and what I can get out of it. It's about what Jesus has done. And what he's done for the whole church. And so we are to celebrate that together. The Christian takes the Lord's Supper seriously. We think about it. We're prepared in advance for it. We, we, uh, you know, look at this quaint little, you know, contraption that has been arranged for us to be able to do this. And it means more than just a little cup with a little piece of cracker wrapped in plastic. We take it seriously. It points to something that's important. It points to something that's beyond just those elements. The Christian church around the world takes the Lord's Supper seriously. I've had the the great privilege of being able to travel to numerous continents, and I've taken the Lord's Supper in, in, in several continents and in very different contexts. Different languages, the setup looks different, the, the, what the elements look like is different in those different contexts, and maybe even some of the theology behind it, because, uh, you know, when you get into what exactly it is the Lord's Supper means, there's discussion and disagreement, well, does it mean this and that. There are details that they may differ on, and they may differ on something greater than details, but the fact of the Lord's Supper exists around the world in the Christian church. Whether you go to India, or South America, or Africa, or Europe, or Asia, the fact of the Lord's Supper is taken seriously. I remember uh, a church we attended uh, briefly in in Russia, and it was a pretty good teaching, a good church, a good-sized church, and it came time for the Lord's Supper, and they do it very differently than we do. Okay, This is very far from from their mindset. But what they would do is they would have a plate with bread on it, and it would be a piece of bread, and you would tear your piece off, which, by the way, means you just grabbed the next guy's piece to tear your piece off, and you pass it on to the next guy, and he did the same, and you pass it on to the next guy. So it would go around the whole room. And then when it came time for the cup, it was a glass about this big, 
and it was wine. It was, it was red wine. And this was, by the way, a teetotaling church. So in their congregation, they did not allow any drinking at all. And so nobody drank any kind of alcohol. They didn't have wine. They didn't have beer. They didn't have any kind of alcohol at any other time except on the Lord's Supper. And so it was, it was red wine, and it was in a single cup. And it would be handed at the back of, uh, you know, this particular section or whatever, and it would go across, and one person would drink, next person would drink, next person would drink. And when it got to the end, there would be the usher, and he would have a little cloth, and he would wipe it off after those ten people had drank. And he would step forward, and he would hand it to the next row, and those ten people would drink. And there would be an usher over there to do the same thing. And so, you know, it's the Lord's Supper, so you're willing to take a risk or two, but you kind of wonder what the hepatitis rates are and all that kind of stuff. But here, here's the point. So first of all, they took it seriously. This was a somber time. They thought about it. They talked about, you know, what it meant and all this stuff. And this is how they celebrated it together, right? And so they would share, and, and, uh, and then the guy would wipe it, and then they would share again, and that's how that went. But here's, here's what was interesting to me uh, about how seriously they took it. See, and the way they thought about it, there wasn't a little bit of, you know, grape juice. There was... There was a quantity of wine, alcoholic, regular, normal, red wine in a glass, and it would go around to all these people, and it was passed to the front as it worked its way forward, and I saw the, de- the deacon or the usher, whoever it was, I don't know, his office, standing there in the front, and he had about half a glass of this stuff left. And in their thinking, you can't have wine left over, you can't have the elements left over, And so this deacon, who never drinks a drop in the rest of his life, is just chugging this giant glass of wine. And I'm I'm trying to take it seriously, too, but I'm watching this guy. My eyes are getting big, and he's just just having to drink it. And I'm not not disagreeing or debating or even entering into the discussion of of, uh, why they did that. But in their mind, it was an important part of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And so I kind of wanted to follow that guy home, you know. <laughs> As he left the service, when did the wine kick in? Because, you know, he drinks exactly one time a month. <laughs> and he drinks a large quantity, I wondered. And, uh, but it's because they took it seriously. They didn't want to waste the elements. It wasn't regular, like, it, it's communion wine. It's to represent the blood of Christ. And so we better celebrate with all of it here. And you guys didn't drink enough, so I guess I have to. And so this poor uh, deacon was standing up front just drinking this. But the reason was because they took it seriously. They were trying to take it seriously. We could disagree with the way they took it seriously, the way they applied taking it seriously. But they did that not just because this deacon wanted to get tipsy for his walk home, but because they took it seriously. The Lord's Supper is an important thing that uh, the Lord has given us to do as a church. And around the world, the church does this. And they take it seriously. This is something the Lord has commanded us to do. And this, this church was doing it, but they were not really giving it the, 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 the somberness. They were not really giving it the, the place, the weight that it ought to. They were not treating it with the, the holiness they ought to, with the remembrance of what it pointed to. And in fact, in so doing, they were bringing disgrace upon the church, and they were bringing disgrace upon the church's Lord. They were showing no regard. And so secondly, those are the, the abuses of the church, but secondly, Paul calls them out for their behavior and he reminds the Corinthians of the first institution of the supper. 
In this middle paragraph here, verses 23 through uh, about 25, 26, is focused on those aspects, the institution, the giving of the Lord's Supper. And first of all, he says, this is his body. This is the body of Christ, which has been given for you. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He takes the bread and we could go into more detail about what exactly the Passover meal was and the symbolism and all that kind of stuff. That's an important conversation, but but for today, he, he took the bread and he he broke it, he gave thanks, and he says, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, that picture there is an important picture that I try to think of whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That bread which represents his body which passing that bread around in the Russian church with the breaking of it, you'd have to break off your piece. There's a great symbolism of the breaking of the body of Christ. When we take the Lord's Supper later on, it's hard with this little wafer to do that, but, but I, I try to do that. I try to think about the fact of the brokenness of that bread and why that was important and why Jesus did it. He gave his own body for a reason. And that reason was our sin. That reason was because of the sin that you and I have that's, that's a part of our, uh, our lineage, our, our inheritance from Adam. That we have this sin. And God who is holy, who's the one who created us, looks at our sin and, and that sin causes a distance between us and him. It's actually rebellion. It's treason against him. So we, we run in rebellion when we sin, s- keeping ourselves separate from him. It causes an infraction against him. And so the result, when holy God is offended, when there's an infraction against holy God, is wrath for that sin. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he gives himself after having lived a life of obedience where he obeyed God, where he was always accomplishing what God wanted him to accomplish. And so he had nothing to atone for. He had nothing to give himself for. He had no no penalty that he had to pay. Yet he came into that condition, into that situation and put himself on that cross because he went willingly. He could have changed it at any moment. But he went to that cross and did so willingly so that the wrath of God for my sin and for your sin, what we deserve because of our rebellion against him, would be poured on him. And it wasn't just a slap on the wrist. It wasn't just a spanking. It was him giving his whole body, his whole life, being beaten, being whipped, and tortured, being hung on a cross to the point of death, that he gave his own body. But it's not even just him giving his own body. Because when he was on that cross, when he was going through that torture, when he was enduring that pain, he was enduring physical pain that was real and it was powerful and none of us would want to endure that. 
But what was worse was that he was enduring at the same time at the hands of his father the penalty for your sin and mine. That he was enduring in himself the very wrath of God poured out for sin. Sin Jesus hadn't committed. Sin you and I have committed. Guilt Jesus did not possess. But you and I possess that guilt. And the wrath of righteous, almighty God was poured out. The wrath for sin, the punishment for sin was poured out. And Jesus stepped in the place of us and took that upon himself. So that when we celebrate him giving of his body, it's not just the breaking of his physical body. That represents even what goes beyond that, which is the wrath of God poured out on him. He who had been in perfect, loving, open communion with God forever as the second member of the Trinity. He loved the Father and the Father loved him. They had had perfect fellowship forever. And in that moment, the wrath of God was poured on Jesus and Jesus had to endure wrath from his Father the one he had always honored. And he did so not for himself. He did so for you and for me. And so Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when we take of that bread, even though the bread looks very different, even though it comes in a in a different form, we take that bread and it points us to Jesus giving his own body for us, that he would step in and bear the wrath of God for my sin in his body on the tree. That's what we're celebrating. And so he, he takes that bread and he, he gives thanks and he breaks it. And, uh, and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This, this points to righteousness obtained. Because when Jesus bears wrath from God in our place, we who have faith in him receive that forgiveness. As if we had paid for that wrath. As if we had paid that penalty. As if that penalty is utterly removed. It's been dealt with for us. It's been taken away, and thus we receive forgiveness of God. And that obedience of Jesus all of his life, always doing everything his Father expected, is credited to us. So that because of what Jesus has done, we, we have his credit. We have his record credited to us and our own sin forgiven. And so thus we have obtained the righteousness of Christ because he has given it to us. And that central point, that central focal point that brings that all to a head is when he's on the cross and his body is being broken. Bearing God's wrath for you and for me. This is his body for you. And secondly, this is his blood for you. In the same way also, verse 25, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is his blood for you. And there's 
there's a lot of imagery wrapped up in his blood. Of course, when he was on that cross, he was bleeding and there was blood pouring forth. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And, and he was giving up his very life's blood. And those things are all true, but that's not primarily what Jesus points to. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. And that takes us back, of course, to Jeremiah chapter 31. In verse 31 and following when uh, we read these words. So this is hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord! But they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jesus is saying, when he's instituting the Lord's Supper, he says, this cup is the new covenant. Remember, you've read about the new covenant. Those terms don't occur together, new covenant. That phrase doesn't occur often. That would immediately, Jeremiah 31 would come to mind. And they would think about this new covenant that God was going to give where no longer would the law be outside. The law would be put within the heart. No longer would God's people consist of those who some knew God and some didn't, and they would have to encourage one another that direction. Now, God's people would entirely know God and have Him as their God. That God would take these external things and He would bring them internally and accomplish them in the life of the believer. That He was changing the game, that He was giving a new covenant. And Jesus says, you've heard of that new covenant. This cup is the new covenant. It's being instituted. It's starting to happen. You're going to receive the benefit of this. And it's the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to accomplish, I'm going to bring in this new covenant with my very death. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So that no longer will the law be something external to us as God's people. Something that we, that we look to out there and we think, well, I have to do that thing in order to, uh, to keep God's favor or to attain God's favor. It's not something that's out there. Rather, the law is brought into our hearts. His spirit is put within us so that now the relationship with God is not something external that, that we have to do or accomplish or, or see out there. It's in here. It's accomplished right in here so that I become his child. I personally, so that his law is written on my heart so that I want to do his law. His spirit has been put within me so that his spirit works within me. My heart of stone has been taken out and I've been given a heart of flesh that's responsive to God. He's done this work internally, not externally out there but internally in the heart of the believer. Jesus says, this is the new covenant, and this cup is the cup of the new covenant, and it's in my blood. I'm going to accomplish it. How can that be? How can it be? 
Well, those external requirements, Jesus comes on the scene, and he doesn't ignore those external requirements. He doesn't ignore the law of God. He obeys perfectly the law of God. He fulfills the law of God. He actually does all of the things that that God expects his obedient child to do. Jesus comes on the scene and he does those things. He obeys perfectly. He obeys that law in himself. And by the way, for those who fail to obey that external law, there's there's a penalty that we owe. Well, Jesus takes upon himself not only to obey in our place, but to pay the penalty for disobedience. Not his disobedience, ours. So that he pays that penalty in his own body. And the result is, he has obtained this righteousness. He has, he has obtained this gift. And he can give it to another. He's obtained right standing before God, righteousness before God, and he can give it to another. And that's this new covenant. He gives it to us. Puts it right within us. So that because we are in Christ... Because we are identified with Him, we stand before God righteous also. And Jesus says, you've heard of this. You've heard of the new covenant. You've heard of the work that God is going to do. And I'm telling you that here I am serving you this cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. I'm going to accomplish it in my own blood. And so, not only do we have a righteousness that's obtained by Jesus, but we have this right standing that's applied to us. It becomes our right standing before God. We didn't do what measured up. We could never do what measured up. Jesus did, and he gives it to us. And so we have right standing before God. And look what, what, uh, what we read here at the end. For as often as you... Eat this blood, verse 26, and, and drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's pictured to you. These truths are pictured to you and by you. The Lord's Supper is a sermon. I'm preaching a sermon today on the Lord's Supper. But every time we take the Lord's Supper together, it is a sermon. It is a picture, it's an illustration, it's a re-description for us. It's not a sermon that we hear, we, we feel this sermon. We see the bread, we see it break, we, we pour the cup, we see and feel the sermon, we smell the elements, we taste the elements. We are engaging in this sermon. It's not just something that we hear. And the elements don't remain outside of us, do they? It's not just a sermon out there that you can tune out. The elements are not just out there. We consume the elements. It's like a sermon, but it's one that we ourselves participate in. Now, normally in sermons, I prefer to be the only one, you know, really actively vocally participating, usually. But I I do hope that you're participating in your own hearts. I hope you're following along. I hope you're paying attention and taking notes and that the Lord is working with you. But but normally I like to be the main one talking if I'm the one up here. And I appreciate that that is normally the case. But in this sermon of the Lord's Supper, you participate in it. You're the one who consumes the elements. You're the one who participates in what we're doing. When we... Celebrate the Lord's Supper, we become the ones 
who are proclaiming the Lord's death. We're preaching it. We're preaching it. We're preaching it to ourselves and we're preaching it to those around us who also partook with us. And more than that, we're also preaching not only to ourselves and not only to those around us who partook, but to those around us who don't partake because they're not believers. To those around who see and wonder what's going on, to those around who don't understand, we preach to them too. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are preaching. And the sermon that we preach when we take the Lord's Supper is, uh, is to mem- remember, to cause us to remember what Christ has done for us. Or as, as one friend will say, we, we do it to remember not to forget what Jesus has done for us. It's one that, that reminds me. This reminds me of the truth every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so it's, it, should, it should be a big deal. It should be something we take seriously. It should be something we think about. It's not just a, a, a two-step thing that we do and, uh, and, and, and we've accomplished our religious duty or we've done what Parkside expects or, or something like that. This is a picture. It's a sermon. You're participating in it. You get to feel the elements. You get to, to, to proclaim the Lord's death when we take the Lord's Supper together. And there's, there's one reason. Uh, well, that memory is one reason that we take such pains in what we call fencing the supper. I've seen, I've seen pictures of, of uh, altars at different churches or whatever where they keep, they keep the elements of communion, and they actually physically have a fence built around it, right? And that's, that's for several reasons, probably is, you know, to keep four-year-olds from approaching, <laughs> right, and, and just taking some before and after church or whatever. But it's also symbolic, that the Lord's Supper is to be fenced, it's to be protected, it's to be guarded. And this brings us to what Paul's going to say in, in our concluding verses here. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread, verse 27, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What is a worthy manner? I'm talking about fencing. I'm talking about protecting the supper. I'm talking about treating it the way it ought to be treated. And he says here, and he talks about participating in a worthy manner. What is a worthy manner? Well, as I was studying through this, it occurred to me right off the bat that it does not say you need to be worthy to take the Lord's Supper. That's not what it says. What does it say? It says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. It's not the person. It's not that you are worthy or unworthy to take the Lord's Supper. That's not the question being discussed here. It it concerns the manner in which we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's not the worthiness of the person celebrating it. This is important because you're not worthy to celebrate it. I'm not worthy to celebrate it. I don't have some intrinsic quality that, that, that makes me good enough 
to celebrate it. That's not the question. The baseline of Christianity, the baseline of of participating in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner is realizing I am not worthy. That's the entry point of Christianity, is that God is holy and his standard is holy, and I'm not. I've got a problem. That's the entry point. That's the baseline. And by the way, that, that's not one that we get beyond. As if, yeah, I used to be unworthy when I was 18 and I first became a Christian. I, I, I got low enough and realized. And, and, but now, you know, I, you know, I pretty well got my worthiness polished up and, and good to go. And as I mature in my Christian life, I become more and more worthy. That, that's, not the, that's not the point. Actually, the opposite often, often happens that as we mature in our Christian life, it seems like we realize in, in deeper and more painful ways our own sin. Our own sin. I've been a Christian for a long time now. I was going to tell you the number, but I'm not embarrassed of the number, but the the birthday's coming, so maybe I'll tell you then. But it's been a long time. You would think I would be more mature. I would think I would be more mature. I look at my life and I see sin, and and I see sin that I wasn't even aware of 10 years ago. That I developed new sin? Man, I'm going the wrong direction. Well, I... It's possible I develop new sin over that time. But what, what is happening is I'm coming to a greater realization. And you, as you are maturing in the Christian life, are coming to a greater realization of your need before God. That I'm needy in areas I didn't even know I was needy when I was 18. I had no idea my depth of need. I thought it was bad then. Well, now it's been revealed to me. And I see in a greater and deeper way, my debt towards God is cosmic cosmic. And if it were up to me to pay it, and I understood this when I was 18, and I understand it more so now, if it were up to me to pay it, I would be paying it forever, and I would never pay it off. The question is not about our worthiness, the entry point of being, uh, being in a position to take the Lord's Supper is the same as the entry, points, entry point into the gospel, into Christianity, which is that God is holy and I am not. I am not worthy. And so what do I do with that? Well, I confess my sin. I confess my sin. If when we take the Lord's Supper each month, your thought and your mind is, oh, I wonder if I sinned this month. You know, well, you know, I can't, on the first of the month I didn't. And on the, if that's the way you're thinking and your conclusion is, no, you didn't sin, or here your list of, you know, three or four things... You're not understanding what the holiness of God is. And you're not understanding the depth of your own sin. The fact is we sin all the time. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our capacity. Have you done that so far this morning? For every second? The Christian life involves us realizing our own personal guilt. And so we bring that, we confess that to God. Yet again, God, I'm unworthy. I have demonstrated again lest I had forgotten that I am unworthy. So I confess my sin. I find forgiveness in Christ. I seek that in Him and I find it. And I recognize the Lord's provision. My my debt is greater than I realized it was when it took me to my knees when I was 18. Now I realize it's even greater. And praise God for His provision for me in Christ. That, that Jesus 
obeyed always in my place. That that penalty that would take me forever to pay and I would never finally pay off, he's paid. And I find that, yes, my my debt was greater than I realized, and it has been paid as well. And I give Jesus glory for his provision for me. And I respond with gratitude for Christ's provision. Thank you, Jesus, that that you paid an even greater debt than I have ever realized. And an even greater debt than I realized at this time last month. I realize you have paid for me. You have provided for me that I stand before God righteous because I have your righteousness. I stand before God forgiven because you paid that penalty for me. So what is a worthy manner? It's realizing that. It's not about you being worthy. It's not about me being worthy. It's about us realizing our unworthiness and finding the complete worth of Christ has been provided for us. And so he says in verse 29 that we are to discern the body. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does it mean to discern the body? Well, he's talking about as we are working through that little list of, you know, recognizing our guilt before a holy God and our confession of sin and, and the fact that we recognize Jesus' provision for it and we give Him glory for it, when we don't do that, when we don't remember that, oh yeah, my sin really is great, and what was the, what was the price paid? I mean, it was free to me to have forgiveness. What was the price paid? The life of the Son of God was the price paid. We have to discern the body. We have to see what Jesus has invested. What he has accomplished. The price that he paid for us to have this free gift of eternal life. To discern the body means to recognize not just the physical aspects of what he went through. Yes, but beyond them. That he took my place and bore the wrath of God on my behalf. He did so in his body. He was slain in my place where I should have been. And so the Lord's Supper is an opportunity to focus on the cost that Jesus paid so that that gift of eternal life would be free to us. That's what it means, I believe, to discern the body. And look what he says in in, uh, the remaining verses, verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, Some have died, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Judge yourself truly. Judge yourself truly. In the Lord's Supper, we have the essence of the Christian life. And the Christian life begins when we realize our need and our debt. The Lord's Supper is the same. Every time the Lord's Supper comes around, whether, whether we celebrate it weekly, whether we celebrate it monthly, 
whenever the Lord's Supper comes around, it's an opportunity for us to realize and remember to call to mind our great need before God and how that is met fully and completely in Christ. So we are to judge ourselves truly. One way we can come and uh, uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together in an unworthy manner is to forego that part. Ah, This is what we do at church on the first Sunday of the month, and so it's good to see you today. Let's take the Lord's Supper and go about our lives not assessing, not addressing, not realizing, waking up again to our own need, our own debt. And it's not for the purpose so that we can go away thinking, oh, I'm miserable, I'm a miserable wretch. I had to remind myself again that I'm a miserable wretch and and uh, hope I feel better before Lord's Supper comes around again so that you know, I have to beat myself down again. No, we do that because we're realizing what is reality. In myself, in my own worth, I am a miserable wretch. But I am not left there in Christ. He has met that. He has measured up where I haven't. And he's given me his own righteousness. And so, not judging ourselves rightly, not assessing our own need before God is a way of dishonoring what Jesus has done. When we take the elements and we are reminded of him on the cross and we think ho-hum, given enough time and given the right circumstances, I probably could have figured it out. No, we need to assess the reality and the truth of our own debt. And so, when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's a fresh opportunity for us to confess our sins. To ask for forgiveness of those sins and find it every time in Christ. And to look to Him for His provision. To run to Christ for that forgiveness, for life that we have in Him. That's what this opportunity is. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper in a a couple of moments. But just a couple of points of application here. Come to the Lord's table today with a renewed awareness of your own need for the grace that these elements represent. Take time. This is, this is one of the downsides of having the Lord's Supper in this capacity where you've already got it. I, I like when we pass the elements and there's time for you to sit and meditate and pray. Here it's a little, little you know, quicker because you've already got it in your hand. Take time to revisit where you would be if you still bore the guilt, the penalty for your sin. Come to this time aware of your need for Christ. That's the first point of application. Secondly, come to the Lord's table to see and feel and taste what Christ has done for you. Your need was real and it was grave. And Christ's provision of himself as that sacrificial lamb given for you is sufficient to that need. God's wrath because of Jesus, has been propitiated towards you. And so we come now to the elements. We come to the Lord's Supper where we actually get to celebrate. Instead of just talking about it, we get to celebrate it together. And my desire is that we will remember what this means and what this means for us, for me, and for you. That this is not just something we do. It's not just a a ritual that we accomplish because it's the right day of the month or something like that. This is representative of Jesus. This points to Him. This reminds us of Him. And by these means, as we eat this, we are filled. We are nourished. This is not 
very nourishing to our bodies. But what it represents is nourishment to our souls. This is something for believers to celebrate. Something for us who, who, uh, for we, we, we who know Christ can point to what he has done for us. And so if you're not a believer, if you don't know Christ, just let this time pass and come ask the person you came with or ask me uh, about this. But if you're, if you're a Christian, recognize that you're not able to take this because you are worthy. It is given to you because you are not worthy. And let's recognize that together.